So the question that we asked ourselves was, is 100%, is an electricity system composed of just solar, wind, and batteries, not only would it cover 100% of our current demand, but it would produce anywhere from 100 to 200% more energy than we need. This is what we call superpower. So essentially, it would be um, at a cost that approaches zero. Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks, the podcast where we discuss global energy issues and trends with experts from around the world. My guest today is Tony Siba, world-renowned thought leader, Silicon Valley entrepreneur, educator, and the author of the best-selling book, Clean Disruption of Energy and Transportation. Tony's work focuses on the convergence of technologies, business models, and product innovations that disrupt the world's major industries. He's also the founder of Rethink X and the co-author of seminal Rethink X studies on transportation and the future of agriculture. Today, we're going to be discussing his latest study, this one on energy titled 100% Solar, Wind, and Batteries is Just the Beginning. Welcome to Energy Talks, Tony. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Now, I first interviewed you three and a half years ago for your transportation study, and I've taken a little heat from colleagues and you know fellow journalists for being uh, fairly positive about that interview and subsequent uh, things that I've written about you. And that made me think of what is Tony? Like, why does he have, is he a futurist? Is he a forecaster? What is he? And I, the, the description that I've come up with is that you are a rethinker. You don't have to be, you're not predicting. You don't have to predict down to the month and the day when things are going to happen and how many of those things are going to happen. You're inviting us to rethink huge systems of our economy, how we live, how we work, how we do and that, I think, is a very valuable thing. So is that a fair characteristic, a characterization yeah, of your work? I would agree with that. I mean, my work um, on technology disruption is about um, looking at the speed and scale of disruptions and, of course, their implications for society. Um, so when I say, you know, by 2030, um, EVs or solar or whatever are going to be 85 or 90 or 100% of energy. Um, the point is not um, accuracy. The point is it's going to happen plus or minus, right? It's not going to be 2040. It's not going to be 2050, which is what the mainstream would have you believe. Um, so I'm concerned about that, about the speed and scale of disruption. And so far, so good. When I interview a guest, I usually make copious, copious notes with questions so that I can hold up my end of the conversation. But frankly, with your new study, I didn't know where to start. So what I'm going to ask you to do is uh, give our listeners a short summary of that study, and then we'll have a conversation and I will do my best to keep up. Yeah. Um, so the question that we asked ourselves was, is 100%, is an electricity system composed of just solar, wind, and batteries possible? So that was the question, is it possible? And if so, what are the characteristics? Um, what's the cost and so on and so forth? What we found, we found a whole number of things. Um, the first one, of course, is yes, it's possible. By 2030, we could have 
a whole electricity system composed of just solar, wind, and batteries. Um, not only that, uh, by 2030, that system, that SWB system, would be the cheapest possible electric power system, bar none. It would be cheaper than anything else, oil, gas, nukes, you name it. Um, on top of that, right, but wait, there's more, right? Um, uh, it would produce, not only would it cover 100% of our current demand, but it would produce anywhere from 100 to 200% more energy than we need. This is what we call superpower. So essentially, it would be um, at a cost that approaches zero. So imagine a system that gets about three times the energy that we produce today at a cost approaching zero. That is unheard of. Now, from my point of view, this is extremely important because as we confront the challenge of climate change, and as we switch to these electric technologies like electric vehicles and electric buildings and, and so on, the amount and cost of electricity that we can generate becomes really, really important. So for instance, I've done some work on reviewing the studies around electrification of the British Columbia economy. And the estimates there are two to three times as much electricity by maybe by 2040. And that's a huge expansion of the existing system. So if you take that example and apply it to other jurisdictions and big economies like the US, this is not a small change. That's right, it's not. Um, and I mean, energy is one of the foundational sectors of the economy throughout history. So we've studied 10,000 years of um, you know, humanity and every time you have a 10X, you have a fundamental change in the energy system, materials and information, um, you get a new world power. Um, it's a foundational uh, sector and uh, we're on the cusp of that. And an interesting finding from studying 10,000 years of disruption is this. Um, the new system is a fundamentally new system. And I will tell you what I mean by that. When we went from horses to cars, the car transportation system was not a retrofit of the horse. The car was not a faster horse. The new transportation system was fundamentally different from the horse transportation system. We built a new road system based on the car, not the other way around. Um, we changed the way we live, we work, we date, we mate, and so on, based on this, uh, on the car disruption. Same thing happened with the smartphone. The smartphone was not, um, you know, the same old um, landline or even flip phone. It was a fundamentally different information system, right? So the new system tends to be a lot larger than the old one, a lot larger, two, three, five, ten times larger than the old one, and a lot cheaper per unit. Um, so those two things happen with disruption. Now, I, I want to illustrate what you're saying, Tony, because coincidentally, I did my master's thesis in the mid-80s on the transition uh, from power, uh, sorry, from horses to power farming in Saskatchewan, 1900 to 1930. I studied these very things. And all of what you said is true. And there are any number of other changes to the system that were unintended or unforeseen in some cases. So for instance, Saskatchewan in 
you know, 100 years ago, had uh, every 160 acres, every quarter section had a, a, a farmhouse and a family and, and so on. And now three, four, 5,000 acre farms are common because of the equipment that's changed, okay. the technology. And now the, uh, you know, the rural areas have emptied out. Right. You know, they're, they're, almo right. they're almost un not quite uninhabited, but very close. As my 94-year-old mother-in-law, who grew up in Saskatchewan on a farm, very often reminds me. But that, it kind of illustrates exactly the point you're talking about. Fundamental right. change, foundational change, has all sorts of implications for other systems. Yes. Um, and that's what we study. I mean, we study the implications, not just the disruption itself, but the implications, um, the cascading ripple effects across society um, to the best, whatever we can do. I mean, um, so all of these disruptions, uh, food, transportation, energy, have dramatic ripple effects across society, geopolitics, the way we build cities, the way we work, and, and so on. And we're already living some of that. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, it's studying those implications are, uh, is, is really, really important. Let's talk about a couple of things that are related. One of them would be the effect of this revolution on the hydrocarbon industry. So we're primarily talking about oil and gas. I think we can already see the death of coal. Yeah. Uh, that's already uh, not even in the rearview mirror. Um, but so the death of the hydrocarbon industry, and that then leads us into a discussion of geopolitics, because of course, a lot of today's geopolitics are dictated by the politics of oil. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, um, transportation and energy alone will dramatically change the way, and if you add food, it's gonna be even bigger. Um, and all of these disruptions uh, tend to a similar direction. They're uh, mostly based on information technologies. Um, the economics of food, energy, and transportation are going from extractive, based on mining and land and, and so on, to essentially creative. Um, you know, um, instead of using cows and, you know, steel and cement and oil and, and so on, we're using photons and electrons um, and DNA, for instance, to, to, to make food and, and so on. Uh, put all those things together and it points to the direction of autonomous cities and regions, meaning that um, whether it's San Francisco or California or Shanghai or Accra, um, they're going to be able to have everything they need in terms of transport, energy, food, and so on to meet all their basic needs. Not all their needs, but all their basic needs, which means that um, they're going to become more autonomous. Now, think about this. Um, if we produce everything we need locally, autonomously, then what do we need the center for, right? What do we need um, Washington or Beijing or Ottawa for, um, or Brussels? So all of those relationships within countries are going to change. And of course, across countries are going to change dramatically. So the, 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 the geopolitics of oil were the geopolitics of the 20th century. Um, and we see oil, for instance, um, I told you three and a half years ago that oil demand would peak 2020. That sounded insane, right? But it happened. Um, and prices will crash by about 20 or 25 by next year. It already happened, right? So um, we expect oil to go down by another 30 or 40% over the next 10 years. What's that gonna do? 
um, the flow of oil, which is the biggest traded commodity around the world, is going to go down dramatically. Um, and we're not going to be dependent on the politics of you know, oil and, and so on and so forth. Um, now, the implications for oil exporters, of course, is going to be huge because volume is going to drop dramatically, but price is also going to drop dramatically into the 20s, and it's not coming back. Um, and we already showed that. Uh, I mean, this year we saw oil going down not just to 20, but to negative 20, right? We, we saw negative prices briefly, um, which is not unusual in, 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 in these cases. Um, so the geopolitics of oil uh, mean that the geopolitical military investments are going to change, right? Um, that uh, who is going to patrol once we become independent, we meaning America, um, of oil uh, and, and any kind of energy imports and so on, at some point we're going to stop patrolling the world's water, right? So who's going to patrol trade around the world? We're not. We're going to patrol the trade that is in our best selfish interest. Um, so trade itself, right? So this is how energy impacts geopolitics, impacts trade. The cost of trade is going to go up international uh, because the U.S., which um, patrolled the world's water for the last, you know, since the war, um, essentially is going to stop doing that over the next few years. Um, so the implication, the ripple effects, geopolitics, um, you know, military, uh, trade, and so on, are going to be substantial over the next 10, 15 years. I want to run something by you that I wrote in a document uh, here a few months ago back called the hydrocarbon vision. And what I argued, because uh, probably three quarters, maybe 80% of Alberta's uh, oil production is bitumen from the Alberta oil sands. Yeah. It's very gooey. It has a very high carbon intensity, which is when you make it into fuel, a disadvantage. But when you make it into carbon fiber, it becomes a significant competitive advantage. And the scientists are busy in Alberta trying to make uh, bitumen into a precursor for carbon fiber, which would bring it down by the cost down by 50% and provide a super abundant supply of it so that carbon fiber could be used more widely in electric vehicles. I've argued that Alberta in particular, and I suppose this applies to other jurisdictions uh, that mm -hmm. produce hydrocarbons, should begin thinking about a post-combustion strategy now. Yes. And if it has the opportunity as it does with bitumen, it should jump on that with both feet and, and accelerate it as much as possible because not only does it add more value and all of that, but it, it, it's a hedge against the future that you're rethinking. Um, yeah, so, you know, oil, if you can't compete at 20, uh, basically you should get out of that business. Um, you know, oil, $20 per barrel. Yeah, uh, uh, every new investment in fossil fuels and nuclear um, is irrational from a purely economic perspective from now on, period. Any new investment in gas, oil, coal, nuclear is already irrational. Um, so what, um, so we're, we're talking about, you know, this 100% SWB system, um, free energy. I mean, it's going to generate two to three times the energy we have now at marginal costs approaching zero. So what, 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 um, and there's another, uh, you know, fascinating um, finding, which is that once you build the 100% SWV system, 
if you add another 10 or 20% investment, you get two to 300% more energy, more superpower. We have never seen that in energy. So there, there, there are disproportionate returns on investments in solar, wind, and battery. Um, and that has never happened in, in, you know, in resource-based extractive energy. So um, what the question that governments and industries and communities need to be uh, asking themselves is, um, how can we redevelop or develop new industries uh, with superpower, with super abundant, essentially free power? Um, and so you should start thinking about for instance, make diamonds. Why are you making fuel? I mean, you know, essentially energy is going to be um, trending to zero. So the question that you ask yourself is, um, what other business model innovations, what other products can we add, right, to, to the equation when we have superabundant free energy? Make diamonds, <laughs> you know, I mean, host data centers. Um, you know, I mean, there are so many industries. Repatriate industries that consume heavy um, energy, lots of energy for cheap, right? Bring uh, car manufacturing, for instance. I mean, we did the numbers for, uh, you know, an internal combustion engine, VW, they would save $2,000 per car if they had access um, to all of these, uh, basically throughout the supply chain um, to this kind of free energy, right? To, to cheap energy. So that's what countries should be thinking about, not how do we repurpose you know, one fuel into another, one fossil into another. I mean, that makes exactly no sense. Energy, I mean, you have to think, what do we do with superabundant, almost free energy? That's the real question. This is fascinating, Tony, because the uh, political discussions in Canada and the United States uh, that I cover all the time around energy are, are very often rear view mirror kinds of kinds of conversations. And it's, you know, oh, how do we save this, you know, how do we save the Alberta oil sands uh, with all of these changes? When the question should be, what's the economy going to be like in 2050? And what do we have to produce to be competitive in that 2050 economy? Maybe bitumen is part of that, maybe it's not, but we should be looking, we should be planning for the industry, uh, the economy 30 years ahead of time that we yes. want, as opposed to just trying to scramble and preserve what we have now. Exactly. I mean, that, that's a little bit, you know, again, the car and the horse, that's a little bit like preserving horse barns, right? How do we, you know, preserve horse barns or, you know, the, uh, the newspaper industry or whatever. I mean, just, just the, the number one thing in, 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 in this, you know, uh, I told you three and a half years ago, and I, I, I've said it for years, the 2020s um, are going to be the most disruptive decade in history. Um, so, I've been right, and we should protect people. So not industries, not sectors, protect people. Give people stability. Um, the government should get out of the energy business. It, it should you know, design a competitive, bis uh, uh, basically market. It should protect people, grant individuals and businesses the right to generate, store, and, um, and sell you know, electricity, for instance. Um, and let the market work. I mean, this is a, a disruption the same way in which um, landline telephony um, basically uh, turned into the internet, right? It was not a bigger landline telephony business. 
it wasn't changes at the margin. It was a fundamentally different system. Um, and so that's the way we should be thinking. Um, this is an internet of energy. How do we design a new society, a new development process, right? A new education system um, based on an internet of energy or internet of uh, transportation and so on. I, I was smiling, Your uh, our listeners of course can't, can't see this, but I was smiling while you were talking because I'm very fond of saying these days on social media and being beaten with a club for it, is that buckle up because the 2020s is going to be a wild ride. It is, right. the, as you say, the decade, the decade of disruption. But Tony, what that means, if this is the decade of disruption, then we're already behind, or many jurisdictions and industries and governments are already behind, yes. and the window to actually adapt and change is rapidly closing. It is, it is. And one, one, one of the um, um, insights from my work on uh, Rethinking Humanity, which I published recently, is that um, this is not another industrial revolution, as the mainstream would, would think. Um, this is a fundamentally um, new system for the world, a, a new age uh, for the world. It's as dramatic uh, you know, as the transition that humanity did 10,000 years ago from foraging to cities and agriculture. Um, so it's a fundamentally different order or age for humanity. And we should be thinking in that way, um, not, not, not you know, another industrial revolution, not a, how do we retrofit you know, hydrocarbons into this economy? That's gone, that's gone. Any investment, like I said, in hydrocarbons is already stranded. Um, so, it, you know, if you want to milk it, if you will, uh, cash cow, that's fine. Well, there is a market, but any new investment should go into the new, what I call networked creation model of production. I, I want to uh, recount a conversation I had with a Canadian oil and gas executive uh, seven or eight months ago when the uh, Saudi-Russia oil price war broke out and followed by COVID and, you know, the energy companies were panicking. And he said, oh my God, we need a plan. And I said, no, no, no. You need, a, you need new ideas. You need, to, you need to think differently about your industry. And then once we've come to a consensus on what that new future should look like, then you have a plan. Yeah. That's when you need the plan. You, at first you, need to, re you think, need to think differently and not only think differently, but talk differently because you need to bring along you know, the, the, the voters and the, the business community and others. So you need to ideas, thinking about it, new narratives, and plans come after that. Plans, to me, plans are difficult but doable once you've got those other two things uh, sorted out. Yeah, um, so, you know, we're, we're already seeing, for instance, um, that, you know, the, 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 the company in the U.S. with the, with the um, uh, the biggest solar and wind company in the U.S., NextEra, has already a bigger market capitalization than Exxon. I mean, even a couple of years ago, that would have sounded insane, right? Um, Tesla has a higher market cap than, uh, you know, the, what, three, four bigger OEMs uh, behind them. So we're already making that transition. Wall Street is already telling these companies, um, the new companies, uh, here, I'm giving you a lot more abundant cheap capital to keep growing your business. And some, not all, uh, oil companies are headed in that direction. But here's the caveat. Um, 
it's not just about technology, right? Um, you have to change your org or organization or organizing system has to be changed. So what made you successful in oil is not gonna make you successful in solar, wind and batteries. It's just not. It's a different type of business model. It's a different organization that you need. So just because these oil companies say, oh, I'm getting into, into um, solar, doesn't mean that they're going to succeed at all. Um, or as we have seen, uh, the fact that a car company says, I'm going to get into EVs, doesn't mean that they're going to be successful. They need a dramatically different type of organization uh, and business model and, and so on and so forth. And that is very hard to do. So the challenge is not technology. The challenge is the linear mindset. What worked in the past is not going to work in the future. In fact, and that's what we call the baggage of incumbency. In fact, what worked in the past, what used to be an asset is now a liability. It's actually going to dig a deeper hole, no pun intended. Um, and uh, so you need to change across the board. And you know, a historic example, Kodak was, you know, they had, they were the biggest investor in digital um, cameras. I mean, they had more patents than anyone else in the business. They developed the first digital camera and yet they could not make that transition. Why? Because of their organization. It was not set out for that, the new business models that would come out of um, you know, digital uh, photography. And I'll give you an example uh, from North America of that and it, it ties directly into your energy uh, and SWB model, and that is electricity markets. And I've been interviewing dozens of experts lately for some work I'm doing. Uh, and the electricity markets, the ability to price it, generate it, distribute it, uh, all of that is, uh, we've had it, an existing system. Clearly the existing system is being transformed uh, more quickly in some jurisdictions than others. But when you start deconstructing what some, it, what some of the issues are in it adapting to this new future that you're talking about, the devil is in the details and there are a lot of details and a lot of devils. Yes. It is a very difficult thing. Yeah. And in British Columbia, where I live, you know, it's dominated by a government owned crown corporation utility that does everything, dist distribution, generation, transmission. And to talk about, uh, bringing in a more market-based system that would allow multiple players and, and, and real-time pricing and markets is it's unthinkable at the political and public level. Yes. And yet, if you do, you have to have that conversation first before you can begin the difficult work of re-engineering your system to f make it future fit as it were for the kind of future you're talking about. Absolutely. Um, and I mean, the, the, Monopolies, um, rent-seeking monopolies, uh, which is what we have now, and you know, which is what utilities are. Um, and if you add to that, governments that act as utilities, it's a double rent-seeking uh, monopoly, right? Um, monopolies are not going to bring this new SWV system, or the new transportation uh, as a service system, or the new food system. Monopolies are not going to, in fact. Monopolies are 
going to stand in the way of this new system. Um, so, um, you know, the idea that we need the existing utilities or monopolies to, to help us going in this direction is, you know, basically it's, it's insane. Uh, it has, uh, you know, that's a bit like saying that, you know, the, the, the newspaper monopolies or the, the, the um, you know, the, the, the AT&T, the Ma Bell monopoly uh, was well positioned to bring the internet, the web, social media, you know, smartphones. They were not. Um, they were good at what they did, landline telephony, but uh, this is a totally new system, the internet, with new business models, new products, and whatever. Um, and that's what we need for the new world. We need um, a fully competitive system at all levels. Um, and, uh, you know, individuals are going to do their own solar and batteries and companies. I mean, you know, the, the electricity is going to be so cheap, you know, with, with superpower that, you know, you, you, you're going to have uh, the Walmarts, for instance, uh, uh, as an example. Um, you know, they, they, they come to my uh, physical store and, you know, if you bring a Tesla, for instance, with 75 kilowatt hours of battery, I will give you the electricity to fully charge that Tesla for free while you shop here. So it's the idea that electricity is going to be so cheap um, that it's going to enable other things. So the idea of selling, uh, basically ma making a bundle of um, dollars by selling electricity, that's gone. That's only going to last a few years. Um, but what we need to ask ourselves and what companies are already doing that is how do I take advantage of superabundant energy and cheap um, to enable other products, to enable other business models um, at all levels, whether it's a region, whether it's Walmart, whether it's a mall that wants to attract, you know, folks um, giving away electricity, just like companies like, you know, Google or Facebook or whatever, give free information, which would have been unthinkable to newspapers, right, 30 years ago. Tony, you talk to executives and politicians, policymakers all the time. And you do it in different countries, not just the United States. Yes. Based on that experience, and this will be the last question. Based on that experience, how open are, are, is our leadership to rethinking energy? Yeah, it's, um, you know, the baggage of incumbency is, 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 uh, is very heavy. Um, so the, the, the world powers in energy, you know, including Canada and the U.S., are having a hard time, right, rethinking energy and so on. Um, disruptions usually happen from the edge, not from the center. Um, you know, it's the Teslas of the world who are disrupting transportation. I mean, it's the next era of the world that are disrupting energy, um, solar, and, and so on. So it, it, it happens from the edge, not from the center. Um, so we are seeing disruptions that happen um, from uh, countries that are not energy wealthy. And they have to do it for purely economic reasons. Um, so we're seeing, for instance, I've, I've talked to, you know, basically policymakers in many countries. Um, that are going in that direction, fully solar and batteries and so on. Um, and what we're finding even within the US, um, for instance, and even in a lot of energy rich countries, is that um, it's the states that are leading, not the federal government. Um, it's the states that are leading, California's leading, um, uh, 
uh, in the US, for instance, it's not in, in Washington, it's not necessarily, um, you know, in, in, in North Dakota or whatever. Um, having said that, I mean, states like Texas, if you look at Texas, um, essentially 100% of what is being built in the electric power system, net 100%, is solar, wind, and batteries already, even if, um, you know, they're, they're, they're uh, oil power. Um, and that's because they um, essentially created a system that, that is competitive at, at some level. Um, but yeah, I mean, the baggage of incumbency is really, is really heavy. Um, so the leadership, I would expect, both in Canada and the U.S. and abroad, is going to come from the provinces, from the states, uh, from the regions, not from the federal government. Well, Tony, on that note, we're going to wrap a bow around this conversation. Always a pleasure, my friend. I uh, really enjoy chatting with you, and we'll look forward to having you on future episodes of Energy Talks. Likewise. It's my pleasure. Thank you.